If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, would appreciate that. Ezekiel 34 is our text for this evening, and uh, we are going to be continuing on. Uh, I never thought we would be spending four weeks in this text, but we have, and uh, I trust it's been a blessing for you as it has for me as we have looked through these nuances. We're here at, at the end of Ezekiel 34, and we've turned such a huge corner at this point. Ezekiel's lips have been unstopped in verse 22 of chapter 33, and he's been given for the first time the unmitigated access to speak the word of God how would it be I mean we know that he was called to be a prophet pulled from being a priest told that he was not allowed to speak a word unless God gave it to him specifically and all of that we think well okay that that still might be challenging but then add to the fact that God is speaking to him from time to time and how would it be to hear the word of the Lord and then to sit and to meditate on it and other things come to your mind and other nuances and other aspects, but you can't speak them because all you've been given permission to do is to repeat the words given to you. Had to be such an amazing challenge for him. Ezekiel's lips have been unstopped at the news of the coming refugees who would arrive the next morning. So he gets this message at night from the Lord, and then he is given one night to freely proclaim these messages. The night messages from Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 23 all the way through to the, the beginning of chapter 40. So here at the end of Ezekiel 34, we come to this amazing passage and we began, we saw some, uh, some initial rebukes that are brought forward on the nation corporately at the end of chapter 33. Remember, Ezekiel is primarily an individual prophet. His words of the watchman are to each individual. But he does begin this section of the night message with a corporate rebuke against the nation of Israel. And then he moved at the beginning of chapter 34 to an individual rebuke of the shepherds. First time that we've seen the shepherds brought forward. And the first 10 verses of chapter 34 are God's powerful admonition against the false shepherds because they are not feeding the flock. And we remember that it really wasn't just that word feeding, it was the word pasturing. Which meant to feed, to clothe, and to care for. So that's what's going on, and that's really what the Lord is irate about with these false shepherds. In verse 11, we transition to the first blessing, and it was this magnanimous provision by the good shepherd. And we see in that section from verses 11 to 16, all of God's incredible provision. How he takes them by the water, how he leads them onto the mountain pastures of Israel, to the best grazing grounds. And we saw this elaborate feast being pictured for us as sheep on the most fertile hillside. As we recognize all of, of that that he brought forward, and as we understood that the first rebuke was nationalistic, was corporate, so also is the first blessing in Ezekiel 34, 11 to 16, also corporate. So we're seeing a paralleling here. 
As we started the night visions, we had this corporate rebuke and then the individual shepherd rebuke. Now we have the corporate blessing in 11 to 16. And in the section we've moved to now, we've moved to these individual blessings that are coming forward. The, the blessing to the nation now transitioning to the individual blessings of God's faithful sheep. And this is where our message title has come from. The individual message of blessing. And that's where we were last week. This is part two, if you want. The individual message of blessing. Now last week in part one of that individual message of blessing, we looked at the first two of three points. The first two of three points in our message. We examined the first point, which was one sheep. In verses 17 to 21. And, and that was, and it began in verse 17 with this emphatic behold to draw everyone's attention in verse 17 as God describes his individual attention to each sheep in the form of this judgment. The rams and the male goats in that verse, verse 17, are indicative of the prideful and the boastful. In verses 18 to 19, the reason for the judgment is that the rich are depriving the poor. And although this is set in a figurative tone or a metaphorical language of sheep, the reality is that the comparison is between the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots, the very wealthy religious elite and the very poor common-day man. Verses 18 to 19, that reason for the judgment, again, is that they're depriving the poor. And it's set in the metaphor of destroying the good pasture. They're going through, they're not just eating of their own pasture, they're going into all the pastures. And they're just making a mess of it. And the, and the clean water, and they're muddying up all of this clean water. Then verse 20 restates this individual judgment based on the metaphor of the fat and lean, the fat are uh, a picture of the rich, the lean as those who do not have. And in this case, again, the picture of the heavy-handed rich religious rulers is those that are the fat, those that are the proud rams, those that are the, the ones who are muddying the water. And here in verse 21, the rich are described because they're bullying the poor. They're not just tearing up their good soil they're not just taking their provisions they're not just taking advantage of them to make themselves fatter but they're bullying them and it shows the, these rams kind of butting against these weaker sheeps and horning into them but then in verse 22 came the lord's response i will deliver my sheep will no longer be a prey God steps in now and, and then I will judge there for the third time. So after seeing God's individual care of one sheep, we looked at the one who is providing this care, namely the one shepherd. So our first point was one sheep. Our second point was the one shepherd. And in verse 23, we see that one shepherd who has been revealed all the way back in our previous section in verses 11 to 16. When we saw that individual blessing and God's provision on the mountains and that wonderful feast on the mountain pastures and the great stream, that is the same one shepherd that is bringing that about that we're now referencing. And that one shepherd is described as the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now the feeding or pasturing which the false shepherds failed to perform will be carried out as verse 23 says, he will feed them. He will feed them himself and be their shepherd. In verse 24, Messiah is given a new title, my servant David who is prince. And we saw the repeated end times of, of Messiah referenced as my servant David last week. And you can refresh yourself on those by looking at Isaiah 11.1, 1, which was one of those references, Isaiah 11.1, 1, Isaiah 55.3 was another place, Isaiah 55, 3, Jeremiah 23, 5, and Hosea 3, 5. The connection to the Davidic covenant is also evident in these verses as, as we see this proclamation of the Messiah who is my servant David, who is the one shepherd. And the connection that we see here, again, as David is referenced, is to the Davidic covenant Pay particular attention to this in light of our Sunday messages. We just finished talking about the Noahic and the Abrahamic covenant. Now, here in this text, we're going to see, we have right now in verse 24, seen a reference to the Davidic covenant. My servant David, in those verses I just gave you, reference back to the Davidic covenant. Keep that in mind. This becomes a pivotal section because in a few minutes, we're going to see some of the other covenants tied in together. Remember how I discussed the covenants have a telescoping component? How they relate one to another? We're going to see that relationship right here in Ezekiel. It's wonderful to see this come to light. And all of this affirmed in the concluding clause in verse 24, I, the Lord, have spoken. Well, tonight we're going to see the conclusion of this great text and examine the way in which the individual care of one sheep is extended by one shepherd. And this result lies in our third point, which is one covenant of one God. One covenant of one God. In verses 25 to 31. One covenant of one God. Verse 25 begins by illuminating our third point, one covenant of one God. And it says there in verse 25, I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. It is God who is making this covenant. It is most specifically Messiah, my servant David, which if we were to look back at verse 24, we see that there, as we discussed before, there is an inner Trinitarian picture that's painted there for us. Many people have said we don't see anywhere in the Old Testament where different parts of the Trinity are mentioned. Well, right here in verse 24, and I, the Lord, will be their God. I, first person singular, following on, it says, and my servant David will be prince among them. Two persons of the Trinity, the Father and Son, mentioned right there. Isaiah 48, 16, by the way, if you're interested in a little side study, is probably the most prominent Old Testament verse that references Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Isaiah 48, 16. Go spend some time looking at that context and reading through it. It's brilliant to see. And where else do we see Father, Son, and Spirit in the Old Testament? Maybe Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, verse 1. Verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering above the waters. Where's the sun in that? Well, we don't see it immediately there. Where do we see it? Colossians 1, 16, 1 John and John chapter 1. There we see that it is the Son who is co-equal and completely participatory along with the Father in creation. So there are other references and important for us to recognize those as they appear as it does here. So as we come to one covenant of one God, this God, this, this Messiah, my servant David, is making a covenant of peace. Okay, we just spoke about the Davidic covenant. What is the covenant of peace? After Ezekiel's declaration of the new covenant in Ezekiel 36, we again see the proclamation of a covenant of peace. Jump ahead with me to Ezekiel 37 and verse 24. Ezekiel 37 and verse 24. Ezekiel 36 becomes the proclamation of the new covenant. And now we get to Ezekiel 37 and we have this wonderful prophecy that I know you're all looking forward to, that I'm so excited about, the vision of the dry bones, the valley of dry bones. And that's at the introductory section of Ezekiel 37. And then we move ahead to the middle section and we have the reunion of Israel and Judah. This next amazing prophecy where these two sticks are joined together by the prophet. And then we get to verse 24 of Ezekiel 37. My servant David, there's our repeated referent. My servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them and it will be an everlasting covenant with them and I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. How many times forever? Four times, three times forever, one everlasting. What covenant is the everlasting covenant? What is the covenant of peace? All of this is obviously an end times reference. This is the new covenant, beloved. When he is speaking about a covenant of peace, it is the new covenant. He has immediately joined the Davidic covenant and the new covenant. Remember our three components? I don't want to get too much on, on a rabbit trail, but I just can't resist um, remember our components of the covenant? There is the covenant statement or stipulation. There is the covenant sign. And there is the covenant ratification. One of the biggest issues and biggest misunderstandings about the Davidic covenant, particularly amongst covenant theologians, is the ratification of the covenant. When does it happen? Is there a connection to something else? 
Did we just see the Davidic covenant connected to the new covenant in one verse in Ezekiel? Don't lose sight of that. That will become vital as we launch in two weeks into the Davidic and new covenant and the connection of them. But there's yet more we're going to see. Okay, this, turn back with me to, to chapter 34. This covenant of peace is clearly an end times picture. Now, do we all, I think we all understand end times. Um, but that can be a little confusing. When we talk about end times or when we talk about eschatology, which eschatos is the, the Greek word that means last, uh, so study of the last things or end times, it begins at the rapture. We're basically talking about anything that happens from the moment of the rapture forward. Now, the only reason I'll hedge my bet just a little bit on this is because of the text in Zechariah that talks about the treaty with Messiah and Antichrist. That could predate the rapture. There would be nothing in biblical prophecy that would be out of line there. So it could slightly predate by maybe a few months or perhaps a year Uh, Most scholars don't believe it could be more than a year or two years, but that would be at the very earliest, the beginning of what we would call end times. Another phrase that is often used in Scripture for this is the day of the Lord. Now there are some who will argue, again mostly covenant theologians, that the day of the Lord began when Jesus came to the earth. But the reality is when you look at the texts in Scripture about the day of the Lord, they are eschatological they are end times focused they deal with the wrath of God and the judgment of God Um, there is no indication in the current church age that we are experiencing in a corporate or significant way the wrath of God we are in a period of the grace of God amen are we not pictures of that am I not in a massive way and I know you as well so that's what we're talking about when we mean end times and and the day of the lord it is uh, a last time stuff the the harmful beasts that we see are also described here in uh, in verse 25 and eliminate harmful beasts from the land so that they may live securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods Literally, this is not just harmful beasts. The, the, the literal Hebrew translation really brings a little more power behind this. That literal translation would be beasts which are evil. Beasts which are evil. And, and not, these are not figurative pictures of the nations that might attack Israel. These are literal beasts, literal animals that are being discussed. Let me give you a few verses that help corroborate that job chapter 5 in verse 22 in job 5 22 we see the same phrase used speaking of the beasts of the earth which are evil one that's more familiar even to us is isaiah 11 6 to 9 when we think of end time references what do we think of almost first thing from revelation the lion laying down with the lamb, or in Revelation, or in Isaiah eleven six, the wolf laying down with the lamb, or my favorite and my wife's, the not just the child but the nursing child playing by the cobra's hole. Yikes! Can anyone say get the mama? Um, 
But that is this, that is the same picture of these wild beasts that are evil that God is going to constrain. So the point here is to create peace so that they may live securely. Now, we might, and, and the exiles, they didn't get this. They thought they were living securely now. I mean, hey, we're by the river Kibar. They've given us water. We can plant crops. We're, things are going to go on. We're going to be back to our beloved Jerusalem. That's the whole problem with Ezekiel, isn't it? The whole book has been, you people don't get it. These dramas, all of this stuff, is so that you will know that the wrath of God is coming. And of course, that wrath has happened and the news of it will reach the next morning. But the point is to bring them to security in the law, in the end times, so that they may sleep securely. Actually, sleep in the woods. Now, I don't know, we might not give too much thought about sleeping to the woods. I don't know how much camping y'all have done, but I remember as a young boy scout going out and we'd go snipe hunting, right? And the older scouts would haul us out and they'd get us out in the woods and then they'd just kind of vanish and then they'd start making all kinds of noise and you would be freaked out and had no idea where to run. Be running into each other and then you'd start hearing the older boys giggling up a storm. Well, that probably was part of the damaging to me but um, there is a reality about sleeping in the woods. I mean, when, when we'd go camping in Idaho, um, we had bears, you know, and in California, we had bears. Well, you know, they're brown bears, and, uh, or black bears, rather, and, you know, you take a pistol, and they start coming through the tent. Well, let them know what for. And rarely does that ever happen. They're pretty docile creatures. They might want your dinner or your picnic, but they're not going to have anything to do with you. But then, in Montana, where I was born, in northern Montana, they got another little kind of bear up there, and they call it a grizzly bear. When you're camping in a tent with a grizzly bear, that's a whole other world. You ain't going to have a big enough gun. Because, you see, you can't shoot a grizzly bear and kill it with one shot. You can't give it one shot in the heart. You can't give it one shot in the head. The only way to take down a grizzly bear is with a very large rifle, and you break them down a limb at a time. You have to take out a shoulder, the other shoulder, and you have to take out their hips. Otherwise, they keep coming. This is an animal that's 10 feet tall that has claws as long as my arm. Now we get a little bit of a picture about sleeping securely in the woods, right? That's what God is talking about here. We see in Leviticus 26.6 a picture of this God paints for us. Leviticus 26.6 says, I shall also grant peace in the land so that they may lie down with no one making you tremble. I shall also eliminate harmful beasts from the land and no sword will pass through your land. You know, I love camping out. It was great going out to man camp. And I have some friends who go out. In fact, Jerry did. He just took a... a tarp down and you know pad and threw it down got a sleeping bag put a canvas tarp over him but i just always have this thing in my mind about kind of snakes crawling around you know stories about people waking up and the snake's been cold but just warm enough and it crawled into the bag with you and no don't like that but this all of this is that which god is preventing and when we think of this text in in leviticus 26 this is the blessings and judgment section of 
Moses' prophecy about the future of Israel. Remember, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. Etch those two chapters in your mind. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. There's like 13 verses in Leviticus 26 of blessing. And then there are 34 verses of judgment. And that's nothing compared to Deuteronomy 28 where there are about 15 verses of blessing and about 40, 45 verses of judgment. Well, this is one of those judgment or one of those verses of blessing in Leviticus 26. God's hill in verse 26 is Mount Zion where it says I will make them and and the places around my hill a blessing and I will cause showers to come down in their seasons and they will be showers of blessing. God's hill is Mount Zion, Jerusalem. Okay, quiz for you Bible scholars. What is the other name for Mount Zion? It was the mountain that God told Moses to go to. That's right, Mount Moriah. Good job. Two names for the same mountain. One of the only places in Scripture where you will see that occur. Mount Moriah and Mount Zion are the same place. They are the Temple Mount that we know today. It is the highest place of anything in Jerusalem. Everything from Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, the Temple Mount is downhill away from it. That's why we always see they went where to Jerusalem? Down to Jerusalem? No, up to Jerusalem because everything is up to that place. So as we see now, all of a sudden, Mount Zion and Jerusalem, and from here, blessings will flow because what it's talking about here is that these blessings, I will, um, I will make them and the places around my hill a blessing, it really says, and I will make all around my hill a blessing. Places is kind of added, and it's a good, re- it's a good rendering, but it's all around Mount Zion will be a blessing. What does that remind you of? Maybe the Abrahamic covenant, where all of God's children will be a blessing to all of the nations? It's exactly what he's referencing here. We have now had the Davidic, the New Covenant, and the Abrahamic Covenant all in three verses. This is amazing to see the way that Ezekiel wraps all this together. The the telescoping elements and the overtones of connection are fabulous. The showers in their season and the blessings refer to the former and latter rains in Israel. Israel has a very cyclical weather pattern. The rains come in very predictable seasons, and they come in similar amounts during each season. The former rains are in October to November, and they're the light, misty rains that will come in. Typically, it is following the harvest time, following Pentecost and first fruits, and that will be starting the new crops. It'll be the first water. And then there is a time where, from November until December, where there's a light period or no rain. That allows this soil that has been lightly moistened and the seeds have started to germinate and to begin to come up. For we know what happens. No seed will spring forth until it dies in the ground. And then we get the latter rains that come from December to March. And those are the saturating hard rains. They're the, I don't know if it rains as hard there as it does in Mobile, but it rains hard. And so these are the two periods, and these are what are being referenced. The, the spiritual blessing of God from the rain are the focus of these. Reminds us of that old hymn, There Shall Be Showers of Blessing. Familiar with that hymn? 
It's exactly what it comes from. Zechariah 8.13 confirms the same point. Zechariah 8.13. The, the earth will also yield in full measure in verse 27. And it talks about the trees and all of the produce of the ground and the increase. And that they will live securely on the land. Remember, they didn't always live securely in the land. Remember back to Judges? Remember back to Gideon? How did we first see Gideon in the Old Testament? He's hunkered down in the basement of this wine cellar, isn't he? He's beating out his grain underground, which, by the way, is a nearly impossible task because the way that you winnow grain is you take it and you beat it hard so the kernels come out, and then you throw it up in the air. So the chaff is blown off in the winds, the light winds of Jerusalem, and then the grain falls back down to collect. Well, there is no wind inside of, uh, uh, underneath of a, uh, a wine press. And Gideon is down there because what happened? The Midianites came and they stole their harvest. So he's hiding out. Well, God says, no longer. You will have secure harvest. And the deliverance at the end of verse 27 clearly shows a future condition where it says, then they will know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bars of their yoke and have delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. Some who would argue that, that this isn't an end times reference would say, well, that, that happened when they were returned back to the land after they were exiled under, or allowed to go back under Cyrus. Well, we're going to see that that is not the, the whole situation going on here. That deliverance also is, uh, Jeremiah 30 describes the same type of return right before the new covenant of jeremiah 31 and we know as well that the the new covenant now for the church applies but it won't apply to the nation of israel until revelation 7 we are the benefits of the new covenant through jesus christ which he inaugurated on the cross but it is the church the nation of Israel has not yet been exposed to that return. Now, it's true that Messianic Jews have been given access to the new covenant as they have believed in Christ. But nationalistically, that does not occur until Revelation chapter 7. So that helps confirm our future tense. Verse 28 further expounds on the topics which have already been introduced and serve as a further confirmation of their actualization where it says they will no longer be a prey to the nations and the beasts of the earth will not devour them. We've seen both of these. But they will live securely and no one will make them afraid. Okay, well we've seen all of that except that last clause and no one will make them afraid. Fear not, I am with you. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. 350 times in our Bibles, fear of the Lord. Always with God as the one who is the solution. He is always the protection in all of these situations of fear. Only God can do this. The one who keeps us from fearing as well. Verse 29 is similar to 28. It restates some of the previously mentioned topics earlier. I will establish for them a renowned planting place. Seen that. And they will not again be victims of famine in the land. We've seen that in their provision. And they will 
not endure the insults of the nations anymore. Is there ever a time where Israel has not been insulted by the nations? If you think that they have, don't, don't open a newspaper or don't look at an electronic media that has to do with Israel. They're torn apart every moment of every day. They continue to endure those insults. But in this time, in this end time, that will not be the case. This is the new insight that confirms these are end times prophecies. And then in verses 30 to 31, then they will know that I, the Lord, their God, am with them. And that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. As for you, my sheep, the sheep of my pasture, you are men, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. What a glorious picture. What a delight it is to know of our salvation and our assurance in Christ. Isn't isn't it the most amazing thing to know that God would choose us, that he would pluck us up out of the mire and the filth of this earth and set us on the rock that is Jesus Christ? What an imagination to recognize when Israel finally gets it. I'm so excited about that. You know, I was just reading Psalm 122 in my Bible reading last week where it tells us to pray, I believe in verse 6, for the peace of Jerusalem. Beloved, we must be doing that. We must be doing that because I'll tell you what, the things that are going on on Mount Zion right now, the, the issues between the, the Arabs who have the Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, and the Golden Dome, the two of the holiest sites in Islam that are sitting on Mount Zion on God's home and the battle that wages there every moment is just unbelievable. We must be recognizing that God is going to bring them together. They will know. They will know. How do we delight to know that the Lord is our God? What a blessing it will be to see this. To have them recognize and see so many prophecies coming true that they will look upon them whom they have pierced and mourn. It's a beautiful picture. And all of my people, the Lord God draws, this this picture of sheep coming home, coming home to their shepherd, being forever drawn and protected, it is going to be the most amazing thing. And beloved, we'll be there. Every nation, tribe, and tongue gathered around the throne And as he returns and as we come back to this earth after the tribulation for the millennial period, we will see this dwelling in action. The individual message of blessing here is overwhelming in its nature. It shows us God's sovereign care over Israel. I I feel like, you know, when I read about Paul being the chief of all sinners, sometimes I feel like, you know, brother, I think I could contend with you. You know, I didn't kill any Christians, but it's just something that never occurred to me. The wickedness that has gone on in my life just is absolutely deplorable. Let's stop and think about Israel for a minute. Oh my goodness. Talk about, talk about your, your, your child that is out of control. Talk about your prodigal nation. How far can they go? How bad can it be? God never forgets. God never leaves them alone forever, 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 everlastingly. You will dwell with me. His grace and his mercy are so incredible for us to recognize and understand. 
despite their disobedience, God's restoration will wipe that out. That is a God of love. That is a love that no human can understand. Because we, you know, we, we're good at loving and we might get slapped in the face a few times and we'll try and keep loving. But after a while, if we keep getting slapped long enough, we're going to be done loving, right? We fall back on that statement. Fool me once. Not God. <laughs> Never God. What a message for us today. Both for our lives, for the world around us that we need to carry the gospel to, God's magnanimous grace is overwhelming and we can take such amazing confidence from his care of Israel and we can more boldly proclaim Christ by knowing this amazing grace and his care. Remember we began and we began talking about how it was for Ezekiel to hear that message from the Lord and then not be able to speak as it continued to go on in his heart and his mind. It's in our heart and our mind every day, I pray for you and for me. Do we speak? Our lips, they have not been restrained. Our world is going to hell in a handbasket and running as hard and as fast as they can to get there. Does it burn in your heart to speak? because we have this privilege every day. Let's make sure we don't miss it.